Welcome to the Living Godcast. Our prayer is that this message speaks to you, impacts you, and inspires you. Please enjoy today's message, and we invite you to contact us if you need prayer, appreciate this word, or would like more information on Church of the Living God. Be blessed today. So last week we finished up in the book Slaying Dragons, we finished up chapter four. Let me see. Chapter four was called The Zeitgeist. And zeitgeist means time spirit, the spirit of the age. And so uh, that was a a great chapter, loved it. It very, very well summed up what uh, we are dealing with in terms of culture around us as our our nation is really becoming post-Christian. That's really what's happening. And even here in the Bible Belt, we're starting to see those things kind of change over. And that's, uh, of course, scary. Scary to think of for the future, for the kids and our kids and grandkids and all that. Um, But in this season that we're in, God is calling us as a church, he has called us as a church, to tear down those high things, amen? To tear down those high things in our families and in our city um, that are trying to exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That's what the scripture says. We, We bring those things under arrest and we tear them down. And in doing that, sometimes we're going to encounter spiritual opposition, and spiritual opposition can be manifested in a variety of ways. Um, it can be little things. It can be great things. It can be um, circumstantial. It can be voices talking out of your kids or out of somebody you love or out of you. It can happen. And so we want to um, we want to really get into this and dig into this. And that's why I think this chapter in particular, chapter six, spiritual warfare demystified is going to be uh, important, and then we we also have a wealth of experience here in the church uh, to draw from. And I've mentioned it before, but about um, gosh, fifteen about fifteen years ago, now we were in a season for several years where weekly we had weekly deliverance here in the church. Every Monday night, we'd have deliverance. People would come, and it was amazing because people would find us. They would they would hear about it. Some people would hear about it in the community. There were times I went to meetings with the mayor and the sheriff. And they'd be like, man, we hear about what's going on over there. You know, we're grateful for what, what God's doing through you guys, you know. And then at the same time, there'd be people in our own house who were scared to death of it, you know. And uh, so there, there's a lot of um, stigma. There's a lot of misunderstanding, misinformation around the concept of spiritual warfare. People do mystify it quite a bit. People um, go to odd lengths to find answers. And one thing that we learned very quickly Uh, was that we don't go to the kingdom of darkness to understand the kingdom of darkness, amen? We go to the word of God. We go to the kingdom of light because everything that we need to know, God told us. Everything that we need to know, God told us. I don't have to go consult somebody who's into witchcraft to understand how demonic spirits work through witchcraft. I don't have to worry about that. I've got examples in the scripture of people dealing with that and the Holy Spirit of God overpowering it and things being cast down. That's all I need to worry about. I don't need to worry about the names of this or the realms of that, blah, blah, blah. People get wacky. We, we don't need to do that. We need to go to the word, okay? So spiritual warfare demystified. The chapter opens with a quote, nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. <laughs> That's awesome. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination are omnipotent. 
Another quote from Chris Ostom. Chris Ostom, wow, butchered that. The very first feature in tactics is to know how to stand well, and many things will depend upon that. That was written in his homilies on Ephesians. If you've, if you've ever ridden a bicycle, you probably already know that you can feel a hill, even if you can't see it. Some grades are too subtle to be observed, especially if there are a lot of distractions along the path, trees, random passersby, barking dogs, all vying for your attention. But your legs don't lie. They know when progress is hard and when it is easy. They can feel even the slightest elevation that resists their effort. Just as there is physical resistance, there's also spiritual resistance. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 6.12. One obvious takeaway from the above verse is that though it may be unseen, the struggle is real. Amen? Hashtag the struggle is real. Like riding that bike up a subtle but definite slope, we do not usually see the actual forces pushing back on our progress, but we sense them nonetheless. Amen? Have you ever been in that season? You don't necessarily know what it is. You just know something's not right. There's been seasons in the house where I've gone to a pastor and I've said, something is off. I can't put my finger on it, but something is off. And usually, shortly thereafter, something Something happens, something manifests, yes. Our spiritual legs do not lie. At that point, we must choose to dig in, push back, and endure until we finish the course. This sense of unseen resistance is what Christians often identify as spiritual warfare. Maybe they're getting ready for a mission trip, and one thing after another goes wrong. Pastor's first trip to Kenya about 20 years ago, he had, he had three medical issues pop up in less than 48 hours. Three, three things. It happened. He went to the doctor, got it fixed. It happened again before he got home. Happened again. He got it fixed, and, and then again. And he had to go on this, this God-ordained trip, and he went, and it was powerful, and people were saved, and it was awesome. But everything the enemy was doing, it was just not natural for something like that to happen. That's a good indicator. If you've got some kind of resistance happening in your life, but it just doesn't seem naturally reasonable, amen, it might be spiritual. It might be spiritual. It feels as if someone is actually trying to sabotage their plans, or maybe they're experiencing unusual challenges with their children or marriage that seem sinister. The people involved are not acting like themselves. They seem to have come under a kind of spiritual funk. Or perhaps odd sicknesses keep popping up in somebody's body or in the bodies of loved ones. Or a business or their finances seem to be under unrelenting assault. All of this resistance feels as if it is coming out of nowhere and there is the distinct impression it comes from beyond the natural realm. It's not always obvious what to do during such times in life. In this chapter, we will discuss what spiritual warfare really is and get some wisdom on how to prepare for it. Did anybody listen to the archive message this week on the podcast? Uh, it's, it was called uh, Finding Out the Thief. Finding Out the Thief was this week's message from uh, 2010, and it's right up this alley. I recommend you listen to it. Pastor brought a word on finding out the thief. And of course, at that time, we were in that season of spiritual warfare. Like many useful terms, the phrase spiritual warfare does not appear in Scripture as such. The wording is instead rooted in the use of scriptural military analogies to describe the manner in which Christ followers 
are to prepare for and repel evil in the form of both injustice and temptation. Perhaps the most famous example is found in the, in the close of the Apostle Paul's letter to the congregation of believers in, in Ephesus. It says, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert, be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. That's Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, New Living Translation. A soldier in the ancient Roman Empire would put on his complete battle gear before engaging the enemy. Likewise, says Paul, we should also be fully dressed in spiritual armor with both the defensive and offensive components designed to protect and advance our spiritual lives. An experienced combatant understands that every inch of a warrior's outfit provides specific protection. To forget so much as one sock could prove a fatal mistake. Since we face an enemy who is serious about our demise, we should take the battle against evil as an issue of life and death and dress accordingly. Amen. That's so good. During that season, there were times where we would come into an encounter with someone and in in our prayer, we would say, Father, we take on your, your whole armor onto our spirit man. And in those moments, you, in my experience, you feel it. I feel it. I feel like I'm, I'm not saying I hear the clank of metal or anything like that, but I'm saying I feel a buildup within myself. And I, I feel, and I don't know if it's psychological. I don't know if God just has us do that to help us feel better. I don't know, but I'm telling you it works. It works. And so if you come into that season, maybe you're fighting for your kids or your job or your marriage or whatever, don't go in unarmed. Don't go in without the armor on. Amen. Before you're going into that discussion with your spouse, armor up. Amen. Maybe literally. Before you go into dealing with your kids, armor up. Armor up. Father, right now I take on your whole armor onto my spirit, man. Make sure you repent of sin or anything in your life. Do that, God, or repent of any sin. I take on your whole armor onto my spirit, man. It's never going to hurt. You might think it's hokey. But when you're in a real battle, you'll, you'll tell the difference. Amen? At this point, you may expect me to do a point-by-point commentary on God's armor to show how each piece functions spiritually. For example, people often say that righteousness is a breastplate because it guards our hearts, or salvation is a helmet because it protects our minds, etc. However, I don't think this is what Paul is trying to say. He is rather using the whole armor as a metaphor to help us understand the way spiritual battles are fought in general. Just as physical battles are fought with physical weapons, spiritual battles involve spiritual implements. That is Paul's main point. It is not that righteousness protects only our heart while salvation protects only our minds. That kind of interpretation takes the metaphor too far. Amen. We've all heard that, haven't we? 
We know this because Paul uses similar metaphors in different ways elsewhere. For example, although faith is a shield in Ephesians, it takes on other images in other contexts. It is a door in Acts 14.27 and a breastplate in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Also, Scripture uses shields as metaphors for virtues other than faith. David uses the image of a shield to symbolize salvation, 2 Samuel 22.36. Uh, he uses it as favor, Psalm 512, and as the Lord himself, Psalm 3320, the Lord is our shield, right? Our buckler, our exceeding great reward, right? That's what he told, uh, he told Abraham that. Uh, the language is flexible. We must not overinterpret with a strictness that distracts us from its main point. Paul means that these are the kinds of provisions God has made available for our protection in the spirit. Spiritual warfare requires us to cultivate the Spirit's life into our actual characters. That means truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than godly virtues. They are spiritual battle gear. We got to say that again. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than godly virtues. They are spiritual battle gear. Let us not relegate them to character traits. Amen? They can be offensive to the enemy of our soul. We need these virtues in order to be good witnesses, but also to be effective soldiers. We must, therefore, wrap ourselves in these spiritual defenses, so to speak, in order to be prepared to combat all kinds of evil. What's more, Paul's metaphor must be understood in its broader scriptural context. Though he adapted the metaphor for his own purposes, Paul did not invent it. A Jewish audience would have immediately recognized the armor of God passage as a reference to Isaiah's description of Yahweh girding himself for battle against his spiritual foes. This is really good. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm, and his justice sustained him. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes. He will pay them back even to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 59, 15 to 18, New Living Translation. That's powerful. Again, if the helmet of salvation means that salvation is meant to protect the mind of the Christian, then why does God put it on in this passage? So we, we, we see the point here. He's, he's saying the, the metaphor is a broader metaphor than what we make it sometimes. He does not need salvation, nor does his mind need protection. These virtues refer rather to attributes of God's character that take on a whole new meaning in the context of spiritual warfare. This is why we must not interpret the armor pieces too strictly. However, and this is the main point, the armor metaphor does speak of its wearer's intent to vanquish evil and injustice with a passion fitting to all-out war. I think this is the issue in, in modern church in particular, whether it's Pentecostal or any other denomination, is that there is a reluctance to war. Amen? There's a reluctance to fight. And, and we... we we like the idea of resisting, but we don't like equating it to battle. Is that fair? Um, we like the idea of saying, oh, I won't be tempted by that. But to take it a step further and to say, that will not come into my house again. 
okay, to, to go on the offensive. It, it's much more our nature, I believe. And, and if I'm wrong, give me grace. But 30 years in a church has taught me that people's natural posture when it comes to, to spiritual warfare is more of I'll resist and I'll go to pastor if it gets too bad, okay? And, and in large part, that's what happens. We resist until we can't, and then we come up front for prayer. And then it helps us feel better, and we resist more until we need to be prayed for again. Amen? And, and you know, for the large, the large part, that's what we've seen. And so it's not that we're bad Christians for operating that way. I don't mean to uh, disparage anybody. What I'm saying is, is that we have to understand that spiritual warfare is a different level than just resisting temptation. Now, it, resisting is important. The Bible says it, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. It's absolutely essential. The devil's going to have his way if you don't resist. But there are times where you've got to take a step further and fight back. There's times where you've got to call him by name and say, in the name of Jesus, get out of my house. Get out of my kids. They're not yours. They're, they're God's. So, what are we going to do? Are we going to take on a posture? Like, we're called to impact our region one person at a time. We're called to do that. That might require battle. Like, battle. We might have to come in on a Monday night and agree in prayer for God to deliver them from a manifesting, manifesting demon. We might have to get a phone call at 11 o'clock one night where they're freaking out. And they call you because they know you more than they know me. Right? And what are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, well, let's call pastor. <laughs> or are you going to say, you know what? I've, I've been learning about spiritual warfare. Let's fight this. You can fight this. You can push back. Yes, resist, but push back. Gain back the territory the enemy is trying to take. Whether it's health or finances or mental health or whatever it is, we got to push back against it. We got to take warfare to a new level. Warfare is not just Sunday, Wednesday attendance. Amen. It's, it's offensive posturing, attacking boots on the ground. That's good. Attacking and, and going against what the enemy's doing. All right. The next section of the book is titled The Radical Normality of Spiritual Warfare. Throughout this book, I've taken time to place spiritual warfare within its cosmic context. We have talked about how Satan, the prince of the power of the air, has tried to poison the human way of thinking. The demonic zeitgeist, the antichrist spirit already in the world, positions itself against God and his ways. In reality, then, spiritual warfare is anything that undercuts Satan's stranglehold on this world. That's spiritual warfare. Anything that undercuts Satan's stranglehold on this world. We can and should be waging warfare in our everyday lives, not just at special prayer meetings or conferences. Our efforts might not always seem heroic or earth-shattering, but imagine what would happen if every Christian took one chip out of the wall of Satan's kingdom every day. Amen? Imagine what would happen in Winchester if we all start chipping away at what the enemy's done and what he's built and established. There's strongholds in this city that have been here a long, long time because believers haven't attacked them. There's strongholds in your family that's been there a long, long time because nobody's attacked them. They've resisted them. They've said, I won't be a part of that by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, many of us have not. 
But what are we going to do about the people who's trapped in there? What are we going to do with the ones that are locked up in its dungeon? Are we going to let them stay there? Amen. Are we going to let them stay there? We, we got to go in after them. We got to tear that thing down. For many Christians, especially charismatics and Pentecostals, the idea of spiritual warfare is often acted out in physical ways. Now, I've never seen this. I'll tell you this. He apparently has seen this. Um, he says, you'll sometimes see prayer meetings with intercessors waving flags, blowing shofars, dancing prophetically, or even making physical gestures that resemble a physical fight with an invisible opponent. I've, I've not seen all that uh, in, a, in a spiritual warfare context. I've seen it in service, and I don't, I don't mind that. It's crucial for us to understand, however, that most spiritual warfare is not fought this way at all. Spiritual warfare often takes on the most mundane of appearances. Some of the most destructive things a Christian can do to Satan's dark kingdom occur through a life of purity, through acts of kindness, Christ-like forgiveness, humility, and self-sacrifice. We got to read that again. Some of the most destructive things a Christian can do to Satan's dark kingdom occur through a life of purity, acts of kindness, Christ-like forgiveness, humility, and self-sacrifice. I believe it was in the last chapter. The most powerful thing we can do is to live like Jesus. Live like Jesus. Every dark power, every dark power in the region knew who Jesus was before he ever healed anybody, before he ever put on the display right? Again, we, we, we major on the display, but it's what, God, it's what we do in private that God rewards openly, the Bible says, right? So we have to war in private. We have to war in the mundane, living purely, being kind, forgiving, being humble, and sacrificing selflessly. Even when spiritual warfare does become outwardly dramatic and physical, it often looks like anything but an impressive victory. Consider, for example, the ultimate spiritual weapon, the blood of Jesus. It is the thermonuclear bomb of spiritual warfare that has forever changed the game and has already rendered Satan a defeated foe. The cross of Christ was the ultimate act of spiritual warfare. Yet it hardly looked like a dramatic display of eternal military might. Amen, right? It didn't look like it was, it was shattering the domain and power of darkness over humanity. It didn't look like it, but it did. Uh, let's see. On the contrary, it looked like utter weakness, total loss, and complete failure. What seems powerful and effective in the flesh is often completely impotent in the spirit realm. Likewise, what seems weak and small to the human eye can make the realms of darkness tremble. The most effective spiritual warfare occurs below the surface in the depths of our character, godliness, and sacrifice. Wow. Occurs in the depths of our character, godliness and sacrifice. None of this is to say there are no outward expressions in spiritual warfare. Later in this chapter, I will defend those who practice spiritual warfare in more physical and demonstrative ways, especially in intercession. But for now, I want to stress this more fundamental point. Shofars and banners are not listed anywhere in Scripture as weapons for spiritual warfare. In fact, to emphasize how practical spiritual warfare is, consider the armor listed for us in Ephesians. Truth, salvation, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith in God's word. Notice what else is in there. Tongues, prophecy, 
right? No, 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 understand all that's sourcing God's word. I get that. I'm not saying we can't speak in tongues, but I remember one of the earliest developments in, in our season of spiritual warfare was what, what tended to happen at first, if a, if a demonic thing manifested, then you'd usually see three or four people stand up and start screaming at it in tongues. That's usually what would happen. And you got this person in the middle who's manifesting and, you know, obviously in a, in a terrible state, but they're, they're being screamed at in tongues. They don't know what you're saying. The person doesn't know what you're saying when you speak in tongues. Paul said that. He said, pray that you interpret so somebody knows what you're saying, okay? So we, we gotta have an interpretation. Otherwise, it, it only edifies the hearer. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14. So it's important that if you're speaking in tongues that you interpret as well, okay? Now, in a spiritual battle moment, four people screaming in tongues at somebody, that often did not lead to deliverance. It led to a recession in the manifestation, what would happen most often is you'd see that person maybe fall out or go into a prayer posture or the manifestation subside. It would kind of go away. And, and we learned over time, and Pastor can attest to this, we learned over time that it was a distraction tactic, that the enemy would make us think that, that he'd left so that we'd leave him alone because we weren't actually saying anything that was setting the person free, but if we stuck around long enough, we might figure it out. So he would act like it would go away and the person would be like, oh, I feel better. Is it gone? Oh, I feel better. In the name of Jesus, bah, there it is. Or, or maybe not that, but you know what I'm saying. It would manifest again. The enemy was good at deceiving us and so we had to figure out what weapons worked. The word of God is the most powerful weapon you've got. It's the most powerful weapon you've got. And you can ask a person who's manifesting a demon all day long if they believe in Jesus. And they'll say yes. But if you ask them to say, I believe in Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, they can't say. I've seen people physically unable to say the words. Because the scripture says, any spirit that says that Christ has not come in the flesh is not of God. But any spirit that confesses Christ who came in the flesh is of God. So when a person can say that, when those words finally come out, you know that you're getting the victory because what's in them is being pushed out. That spirit, that dominion is being broken down and pushed out. So the point here, truth, salvation, righteousness, peace, faith, God's word, these are the things we got to major in when we're talking about battle, warfare, amen? The gifts are awesome. They have their place, but it's not spiritual warfare. Not all the time. Okay, now there's people who have discerning gifts and these things that, that aid in a deliverance experience, and that's awesome. But, but what we tend to see in Pentecostal church in regards to a, a demonic experience is usually the same things we do when the Holy Spirit's moving. But that's not the way you fight it. You gotta fight it with the word, okay? All right, I digress. These are all invisible attributes made visible only by a Christian lifestyle. Further, every item mentioned here directly contradicts the spirit of the age. So good. The demonic antichrist spirit we discussed earlier. This should reinforce the truth that our internal alignment with God and the behavior that proceeds from that alignment are vitally important to spiritual warfare. Indeed, they are the very root of victory in any spiritual battle. If Paul's message in Ephesians is not clear enough about this point, consider the way he frames spiritual armor in Romans. This is going to be from Romans 13. It says, This is all the more urgent for you, 
for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. That's powerful. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Romans 13, 11 to 14, New Living Translation. Notice this military terminology is being used to address our own personal war against sin. I stress this because some readers may feel I'm taking license with the spiritual warfare terminology and downplaying its significance by applying it to our internal struggle. I want this to be clear. Biblical spiritual warfare begins in us. It begins in us. Here Paul specifically emphasizes that our spiritual armor does not merely protect against outside evil powers but also against the internal, personal practice of sin. That's powerful. Paul admonishes his readers in both passages to protect themselves against evil and sin by wearing, so to speak, right thinking, pure actions, and the actual presence of God. Paul uses strong military language out of a deep concern for the personal holiness of his audience, which includes us. He does not want to see the churches, the precious people for whom he has poured out his life, taken down by a flippant attitude toward evil in all its forms. He encourages them to prepare for battle against temptation. And once they have done everything possible to get ready, he encourages them to rise up and actually fight the battle. Man. The next section is titled, Get Ready and Stay Ready. Getting dressed for battle is no small task. Modern American soldiers carry more than 60 pounds of gear, and longer patrols can more than double that amount. Rations, medical equipment, weapons, ammunition, communication technology, and miscellaneous gadgets fill every pouch and pocket. Needless to say, people don't go through the effort to prepare like that unless they are going to war. That's true today, and it was true 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote Ephesians. Nobody prepares like this to go shopping. To be clothed for war signals the intention to fight. This is the way Isaiah used the armor metaphor in the passage above. And it is the way Paul communicates, communicates it to Christians now. We gear up because we understand we are in a spiritual battle. Therefore, we don't naively walk around unarmed and oblivious like private citizens. The mindset of a warrior is different than the mindset of a civilian. I, I've, I've watched some podcasts and listened to some things where um, like people interview Navy SEALs. Have you ever seen some of those? They interview Navy SEALs and they talk about the things that they do even now that they're back stateside when they're not on a mission or whatever. They talk about sitting in a restaurant facing the door so they can see who's coming in and going out. They talk about sizing up how many exits there are, all these things. And we don't think like that, do we? No. Don't think like that. Even if you've got a concealed carry permit and you've got your weapon on you and all that, you're not always thinking that way. Okay, you, you're, you're, you go in, you sit down because you're hungry. But everything about their life is affected by that experience of war. They're always ready for war. And in the Christian world, we're not. I mean, we're not. That's the reality. I'm not. I'm not judging you. I'm not either. There's plenty of times where I go to God and I'm like, God, can I just rest? I'm tired of fighting, <laughs> you know. But 
regardless, we, we don't live in this state of readiness. And what he's challenging us to do here is to understand that when we say, Heavenly Father, we take on your whole armor onto our spirit man. When we say that, we are saying that today, or in that moment, in this instance, from here on, I am, I am ready to be offensive, right. right? Offensive. I'm ready to attack if I need to be. If I need to attack, I'm ready to do it. This is a, a challenge for us because we've, even in our real lives, we've lived in such relative peace and safety. And so to develop a, a combat mindset in the spirit, it, it might be a challenge for us, but it doesn't mean that God's not calling us to think that way. It doesn't mean that God's not challenging us to say, hey, be ready wherever you go. Be ready. Not so that people know your name or think you're awesome or that you're spiritual this or that, but because somebody might need help. There might be somebody in Walmart who really needs help or Kroger or, or the gas station. We need help at the gas station. But whatever it is, if we armor up, we gotta be ready to fight that day, that moment, from that moment on, amen? It's gonna require a mindset shift. But if we really wanna see victory come to people who are bound up, how are they gonna do it unless somebody goes, amen? How are they gonna be free unless somebody tells them they can be? The theme of military readiness saturates the warfare passage in Ephesians 6. Paul talks about being able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil, verse 11. He talks about being able to resist the enemy in the time of evil, verse 13. He talks about putting on our shoes so that we will be fully prepared, verse 15. Then he talks about praying in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere, verse 18. In fact, within its context, all of the armor seems to be a matter of preparation and readiness. You will notice that Paul does not specify the exact methods of fighting a spiritual battle in this passage. He rather emphasizes that we should be equipped and ready. Paul doesn't even tell us what to do with the sword. He just tells us to have one. That's a good point, isn't it? He just tells us to have one. Nor does Paul provide particular strategies for fighting. In fact, he doesn't talk much about the fight at all. His basic instruction is to get dressed and stay dressed in God's armor, then stand and fight. Then stand and fight. You know, there's, there's a thing in people called fight or flight. There are things that people do in moments where survival instinct kicks in. And people can do, your body can do amazing things when you're trying to survive. Adrenaline can flow. You can, there's people who can lift cars off their kids, all this stuff. Crazy things. I, I would say it's probably not all that different in the spirit. That if we are conditioned and ready, if we're ready, that when we're in a moment of battle, what we know will kick in. Amen? What we know, what do we know? We know the word of God is sharper than any, any two-edged sword, dividing asunder soul and spirit. We know that if there is a spiritual enemy, the one thing he can't fight is the word of God. So I've got to know the word of God. And if I know the word of God, there is not an enemy that can stand or keep or retain anything of mine or anything that God has given me. And if he's foolish enough to reveal himself, he's going down. Amen? There's lots of times, and pastors said this, we learned this in that season. The enemy doesn't want to be found out. Because if he's found out, he can be dealt with. Amen? If you find out the enemy's working in your family, deal with it. Deal with it. Put on your armor, get in the word, and start throwing the word at him. Throwing the word at him. That's what you do. And eventually it's going to break. 
Eventually it's going to break. It can, it can be in, in healing scenarios. It can be in mental scenarios, whatever it is, social stuff, whatever's going on. However he manifests himself. If he's foolish enough to show his hand, fight him. Don't just sit back and be like, I think that was demonic. I'm going to call pastor. You know, if you don't know, call pastor, sure. But I'm saying, don't sit back and let somebody else try to fight your battle. That thing got in your house. Let a little bit of righteous indignation get up in you. That thing touched your kids. That thing is trying to change your relationship with your family. It's trying to destroy that marriage you committed to before God and man. Who exactly does it think it is? This is how I get when I get righteous indignation. There was a time I was tucking in Keeley years ago, and I heard something in the hallway, and it sounded like a person. It sounded like a person, and I heard it a couple times. And I looked, and I realized there was nobody there. Oh, man, fire shot up out of me. I got so mad. I ran, it freaked her out because she was like eight or nine. It freaked her. I, I jumped up off that bed where I was tucking her in. I jumped up off that bed. I went in that hallway. I said, you get out of my house. You get away from my kids. Don't you ever come back into this place again. And I battled for about five minutes like that. And I walked back in there and she's like, <laughs> what, what just happened? Something in me identified what was in that hallway. That readiness kicked in and it was time to throw down. In the name of Jesus, it went. And I haven't heard it since. Amen? What are we going to do? And I'm not, I'm not tooting my own horn here. I'm saying that kicked in, that instinct, that fight kicked in in me. Because I'd been ready. I'd been there. I knew. I knew what that was like. And I recognized that there were times that, that he told me stories about seeing something in the hallway when I was a kid and them fighting it, calling it down and kicking it out. And that immediately came back to my mind and jumped in my spirit and it was on. And then it was gone. Amen. Readiness, spiritual readiness. It's a matter of preparation and readiness. You will notice that Paul does not specify the exact methods. He just tells us to have the sword, right? His basic instruction is to get dressed, stay dressed in God's armor and stand and fight. One of the worst things that could happen to a soldier is to be caught off guard, undressed and sleeping. In the middle of the night, in a war, we never know when the attack will come. The enemy always, always prefers to take us by surprise. And we'll finish there. I didn't realize I was over time. We'll finish there. The enemy always prefers to take us by surprise. But the Bible says that we are not ignorant of his devices. Amen. The flaw of the enemy is that he works the same way every time. And if you get enough experience, you can remember how he does stuff. Oh, I've, I've been here before. I've seen this before. Maybe it wasn't in my kid. It was in somebody else's. But I've seen this. I know how to handle this. I know what the word says about this one. Amen? We are not ignorant of his devices. And we have been empowered. We have been armored. We have been geared up with everything that we need to take this city and to take our families back. Everything that we need. The only difference is, are we going to be passive Passive-aggressive Christians, go get them, Pastor. Go get them. Call it down, man. Pastor Hall prayed down fire today. That was awesome. Are you praying down fire? Are you attacking the enemy? Are we, 
when we're driving through Winchester and we see somebody who's being wrecked by drugs, are we just writing them off? Or are we saying in the name of Jesus, God, bring restoration and healing to that life? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to be on the, on the readiness, on the offensive? Or are we going to sit back and let God do it? Oh, if it's God's will, it'll happen. God's will operates through God's people. That's how it works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word today. We ask, Lord, that however challenging it may have been, Lord, that it would become part of us. God, that we walk out with a new sense of readiness. God, that our spiritual alertness would be on maximum. God, that we would know when something is manifesting from the kingdom of darkness and someone that we love and that we would be able to tell and discern those moments where you've called us to fight offensively, God, not just resist. We thank you for it, Lord, because you're elevating the mindset of this house. This is going to go into the ears of people who are not in this room right now through the podcast, God. It's going to go out there because you're elevating the mindset of this people because we have a mission and a purpose that is bigger than Sunday or Wednesday. And to do it, God, we must use every item that you've equipped us with. And God, we sign up for battle in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening today to The Living Godcast. We trust and pray that you are blessed by today's word. If you would like to contact us for prayer or for more information about Church of the Living God, please visit our Facebook page at WinCityCOLG or give us a call at 859-745-1865.